This is the return of District Sentinel Radio. I'm Sam Sachs. I am Sam Knight. And we're broadcasting from the river to the sea. That's the Potomac River to the Atlantic Ocean here in Washington, D.C. And just so everyone is clear, when I say we're broadcasting from the river to the sea, I don't mean that all the other podcasters in this region will be slaughtered. I know some people are confused by this, but we just want everyone to be able to pod freely. Check out our website. It's districtsentinel.com. We are so back. We took a few weeks off. We've rebooted the show a bit. I think you'll like what we did with it. Still got the same old garbage can, though. It's just been marinating for weeks in its own filth. I'm actually dreading when we have to roll it out at the end of the show. But someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. Why not us? We are who we've been waiting for. What's on the agenda today, SK? Today, we are joined by Yumna Patel, Palestine News Director for Monda Weiss. Yumna brings us up to speed on what's been happening in the West Bank with the world's attention on Gaza. We also discuss the culture of fear and repression inside of Israel itself during its campaign of mass murder. Also, as promised, we're taking a deep dive this week and looking at events from 17 years ago, which are crucial for understanding the situation today, the 33-day war between Israel and the armed wing of Hezbollah. And then we'll slip beyond the earthly realms to search for alien life in the universe, only to be yanked back down to the ground by bureaucrats in black suits enforcing a system of overclassification. It's the latest on the frustrated search on Capitol Hill to get answers about UFOs. The truth is out there, and it is heavily redacted. (laughs) Also, we're bringing back an oldie, listeners who've attended our live shows or remember the pod from the early days will be familiar with it. Guilty or Innocent is back. On the docket, charged for counter-revolutionary activity this week, Cornell West. Ooh. Hmm. SK and I will settle the discourse over his quixotic presidential campaign once and for all. Trial of the century. Already (laughs) lining up. But first, uh, on a more serious note, obviously, the biggest story in the world is what's happening to Palestinians in Gaza and across the West Bank in what, by any objective definition, is an ethnic cleansing campaign by the Israeli Defense Forces. The siege and bombing of the Gaza Strip has intensified. And by the time you're listening to this show, the civilian death toll in the enclave will have topped 10,000 significant number uh, of those casualties, children. It's more than 10 times the reported death toll from the October 7th Hamas attacks. Violence is increasing in the West Bank, where the Israeli government is arming extremist settlers who are targeting Palestinians and their homes and property. Here in Washington, the House passed a $14 billion aid package for Israel that 
get this, was funded by cutting the budget of the IRS by $14 billion. I'm not an expert in budgeting or or math, but this reminds me of that scene in Arrested Development when uh, maybe starts stealing the bananas and figures that, oh, if we just steal money from the register for the stolen bananas, they offset each other <laughs> rather than just doubling your losses. Before the vote, the Congressional Budget Office reported that the $14 billion aid package would actually cost the government $28 billion due to lost collection revenue. Basically, rich people being able to dodge their taxes. Still, still, this bill got 12 Democrats on it. 12 Democrats to support the aid for tax cheats and genocidaires bill of 2023. Uh, the bill also includes a provision that gives Israel up to three and a half billion dollars to buy weapons beyond the oversight of Congress. This was first reported by In These Times, quote, as part of three point five billion dollars earmarked for foreign military financing funding for Israel. The executive branch sought permission to unilaterally blanket approve the future sale of military equipment and weapons like ballistic missiles and artillery ammunition, to Israel without notifying Congress. This means the Israeli government would be able to purchase up to $3.5 billion in military articles and services in complete secrecy. That's what's uh, known as using power behind the scenes to influence Israel. Uh, on the Senate side, Josh Hawley is pressing the Department of Justice to investigate pro-Palestine groups on campuses for supporting a terrorist organization. The Anti-Defamation League has also sent a letter to schools to launch their own investigations into student-led organizations. The climate, it's not great right now. Bad climate. Yeah, I uh, I wouldn't feel bad if Senator Hawley goes ahead and skips our segment later on Hezbollah. Yeah, we'll have the uh, DOJ knocking down our door here. Anyways, for more on uh, all of this, let's bring in our guest for this week. Yumna Patel is the Palestine News Director for Mondo Weiss. And we started by asking her to bring us up to speed on what's been happening in the West Bank and East Jerusalem since the events of October 7th. Sure. So it's been a very tumultuous time in the West Bank, um, not just since October 7th, of course, for for years, but particularly in the week, weeks and, and months leading up to October 7th. Um, the West Bank had been experiencing a increase in settler and soldier violence against Palestinians. More than 230 Palestinians had already been killed in the West Bank before October 7th. So that's just setting the scene for people um, like in the West Bank um, before the, the Hamas attack and then the bombardment on Gaza started. Since then, we've seen... Um, an incredible spike in settler and soldier violence as well in the West Bank. Um, we've seen, you know, massive 
uh, road closures, checkpoint closures, um, stops and arbitrary stops and searches of people's cars, um, assaults of Palestinians by soldiers at checkpoints, uh, massive raids nightly raids by the Israeli military into Palestinian towns, cities, villages, and refugee camps. Uh, around 1,800 Palestinian residents of the West Bank have been arrested, taken from their homes in the middle of the night and thrown in jail just over the past three weeks. Um, and that doesn't include an estimated 4,000 Palestinian, uh, Palestinian laborers from Gaza. These are day laborers who were in Israel when this all happened. Uh, they, of course, weren't able to get back into Gaza. Israel rounded them up threw them in the West Bank for a few days, and then they started rounding them up and putting them in jail. So the reality is that just over the past um, three to four weeks, Israel has actually doubled the Palestinian prisoner population. And so, um, and it's important to note that a lot of the people who are being thrown in jail and thrown in prison, these are not people that have committed any crimes. So a lot of people, and they are getting thrown in prison without any sort of due process. So you have hundreds and hundreds of people who now have been thrown in jail or thousands, let's say, under Israel's policy of administrative detention, which essentially allows Israel to jail Palestinians without any charge or trial. Um, and two Palestinian prisoners, including a, a senior a political Hamas official, because we know Hamas has a political and a military wing. So this was uh, a senior official within the, the Hamas political movement in the West Bank was arrested, and he died under unknown mysterious circumstances in Israel prison and a second Palestinian prisoner has also died under unknown circumstances. So that's sort of one phase of what's been happening in the West Bank. At the same time, you have a huge, huge rise in settler violence. And so rights groups, Israeli rights groups have documented well over 100 instances of Israeli settler attacks against Palestinians just in the past three weeks alone, just in the, the three weeks since October um, since October 7th, these rights groups have documented, you know, over 100 attacks. And these are instances of settlers raiding Palestinian villages, um, attacking Palestinians, physically assaulting them, um, attacking their homes, attacking their livestock, um, damaging their, their property and their farmlands. And there have also been very violent attacks as well, where you have these armed settlers going in and shooting at Palestinians. A number of Palestinians, I believe it's at least three, though it could be up to, no, I believe it's actually four, though the number could be as high as six. Anywhere between four to six Palestinians have been killed by Israeli settler fire just over the past few weeks. And so that's the reality in the West Bank. And of course, in we've seen in occupied Jerusalem and amongst Palestinian communities inside Israel, there has been this massive campaign by Israeli right-wing groups and actors, as well as the Israeli police, and just generally by Israeli society. There's been a campaign of censorship, harassment, targeting of any Palestinian who posts on social media about Gaza or who basically has any public expression of their Palestinian identity. Um, they're being fired from their jobs uh, and also being arrested by, by the Israeli police. So it's a very scary time for Palestinians uh, everywhere. 
I read your report from uh, your recent report uh, from the 21st about the uh, current climate in Israel. And I'm hesitant to use the word because I think it gets thrown around a lot, but it, it really does seem totalitarian. I mean, it, it, it reading your report, it, it just sent chills down my spine describing this uh, situation where a lot of Israeli citizens seem to see themselves as informants and it's just pervasive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think I don't think um, using totalitarian does not, um, you know, I think that is a proper characterization of the current moment. Some of the Palestinians we spoke to described it as the thought police. They felt like they're um, as the thought police or some people even described it as a witch hunt. Um, and so what is happening, as you mentioned, um, as I wrote in this report, so I interviewed Palestinian lawyers and these are lawyers that are um registered with the Israeli Bar Association. So they practice in Israeli courts. I spoke to lawyers, I spoke to doctors, I spoke to human rights workers, um, and we doc who documented the cases of students and lecturers at university. I spoke to ordinary Palestinian citizens of Israel. And all of them are saying that they are scared to even speak publicly, sometimes in Arabic, or talk amongst colleagues because they are being man monitored by their own colleagues at work who are reporting them internally to management if they say anything remotely sympathetic to Gaza. Um, and then management is either suspending or firing them. And in many cases, actually reporting people to the police. So dozens and dozens of people have been arrested for social media activity, um, which the, you know, Israeli police are charging them with, um, with what they're calling, you know, support of a, of a terrorist organization. But what, what we witnessed, and in speaking to human rights groups, is that a lot of people are being persecuted over social media, over simply liking or following a page. So I'm sure a lot of people know the popular page Ion Palestine, which simply just posts updates um, of everything happening on the ground. People have been fired from their jobs, and, and some people have even been um, called in for police investigation simply for liking posts on that page or for even following that page. So it's extremely totalitarian. And, um, at, you know, the, the, the levels of, of censorship and surveillance are, are astronomical right now. Mondo Weiss is one of the only outlets uh, alongside Electronic Intifada that um, at least that I follow that have been raising questions about the Israeli security response on October 7th and the possibility that a number of Israeli civilians may have been killed in crossfire uh, based on various pieces of evidence and witness testimony. Um, I noticed that one of the stories about this on Mondo Weiss was written by uh, an anonymous Israeli. Also, Mondo Weiss has published an open letter written by and signed by uh, Israelis who um, fear for their safety raising these questions. I mean, without getting too much into you know what happened on October 7th as far as the Israeli response and what these eyewitness testimony has suggested people can go and find that stuff uh, on Mondo Weiss and in, in uh, Electronic Intifada. What does the decision to publish this stuff anonymously say about 
the fear of reprisal right now in Israel? I think it, it says a lot. People, and these are not just Palestinians, there's also Jewish Israelis are scared for their safety, for even questioning um, the the government or the government's response. And like you said, we've published a couple of, of articles by um, anonymous, anonymous contributors out of fear for their safety, raising very valid questions, um, you know, based and, and supported by evidence, questions as to how many people in these different Israeli towns along the Gaza border were actually killed in the crossfire or killed by, you know, Israeli forces in an attempt to, you know, take out the, the Hamas militants that were, that had, um, you know, crossed the Gaza border fence. And so these are very valid questions. A lot of Israelis are demanding answers, but right now the climate that the state is perpetuating and that's certainly being perpetuated largely by the society, um, is one of, you know, if you if you call this into question, if you question the state, if you question the state's response, if you support anything that can remotely be misconstrued as even sympathy for Palestinians, um, you know, then you're a traitor and you're attacked. There was an Israeli journalist um, pretty early on into all of this who had had written something just simply expressing sympathy for Gaza and a lynch mob basically went to his home and tried to break into his home and attack him and he had to flee to a safe house with his family. So that that's the reality that that people are facing even, you know, Israeli Jews who, let's say, are first-class citizens compared to, to Palestinian citizens of Israel, they are even being targeted for, for raising these very valid questions. As the Israeli military is pressing into Gaza now and the airstrikes ramp up, uh, it's it's become clear that officials both in the U.S. and in Israel uh, aren't willing to talk about what the endgame is. Uh, where this operation is headed, and if if it is focused on removing Hamas, quote unquote, what comes after uh, Hamas? And people have pointed to the lack of answers to those questions as a sign that um, they don't know the answer, that Israel doesn't know what it plans to do afterward. Whereas uh, I would argue that Israel knows exactly what it wants to do; it just doesn't want to state it publicly right. at this point, um, which is to drive Palestinians out of Gaza into Egypt. Um, mm -hmm. If, and you can speak to, to that part, but if that is the plan in Gaza, what what's the end game for Palestinians not in Gaza? Palestinians that are living in the West Bank, what is, what is the ultimate end game here when it comes to any Palestinian that is currently living under occupation? Sure. I mean, I think that we can't, it, it's hard to speculate exactly how things will unfold, let's say, over the next few weeks, months, and even years. And Israel has said, you know, they, they've, they've undergone this intense propaganda campaign to liken Hamas to ISIS for a number of reasons, including uh, one of which is, you know, to justify its military strategy, which it says is going to be this long drawn out, quote unquote, war um, of, you know, similar to the way that ISIS was dealt with in in Syria and and other parts of the Middle East, which is this long drawn out, you know, um, quote unquote, war of multiple 
ground and aerial offenses over the course of several years until, quote unquote, you know, they're they're wiped out, let's say. Um, and so Israel has been very open about its plans of of wiping out Gaza, like you said, and sending uh, Gazans into the Sinai. As for other Palestinians, I'm not sure how they're going to achieve it, but we know that, you know, Israel's plan from the very beginning, and they've been open about this under Netanyahu's reign, is one of, you know, to 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 erase and replace. And that is sort of like the founding tenets of, of Zionism. And the, the Israeli state, as we know it, it's a settler colonial project, and its aim is to take as much land as possible with as little... Um, Arabs or as little indigenous people as possible. So I think what we're going to see is an increased effort. And we've seen this already, you know, under the cover of war, Israel's far right ministers are, you know, they are going around arming settlers and arming Israeli civilian, uh, Israeli civilians within Israel proper as well um, to sort of deputize, give, give police powers to, to ordinary citizens. Um, and so we're seeing this, you know, the deputization of, of Israelis, plus I think we're going to see more attempts towards annexation of Palestinian land in the West Bank, let's say. And the the increase of, of settler attacks and the, the growth of settlements and policies of killing Palestinians in the West Bank, demolishing homes, et cetera, all as part of this larger goal to drive out as many people as possible and annex as much territory as possible. So, I mean, I don't think Israel's at least, I'm sure there's a plan out there. We haven't, um, we haven't seen that plan for the West Bank, let's say, or their most recent plans in the way that we've seen the internal intelligence documents for for plans pushing Gazans into the Sinai. Um, but, you know, Israeli officials are being very clear about what their intentions are. I believe it was just yesterday that a Likud minister who's part of Netanyahu's government, um, you know, went out and made these extremely genocidal statements saying that, you know, Gaza needs to be wiped off the face of the earth. There are no innocent people in Gaza. And additionally, you know, we need to to do something similar in, in the West Bank as well. And the the IDF should show no mercy. So that's sort of the, the d- direction in which we're going. The violence has been real. The repression is very real. Uh, we've also seen some evidence that the IDF operations don't actually go so well when they can't just bomb hospitals and schools and refugee camps from above. Um, And we've seen some resistance in the West Bank as well. And I, I just, I bring it up because it seems like, you know, there's a lot of fear, but also a lot of hope among certain Palestinians right now. And, how is that do you also get a sense that you know that is sort of um the mood that it's it the fear of violence and and death and horrific injury is real but you know it just also seems like palestinians are also hopeful that this can get them toward liberation if if they can get through this and 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 stick together. I mean, is, is that does that make sense to you? 
Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think it's obviously I don't want to speak for for all Palestinians, but I would say like the characterization kind of of what you're describing was very much um more applicable, I would say, to the the very beginnings of all of this, you know, in the immediate aftermath of October 7th, because, you know, Palestinians never imagined it possible that Gazans were going to break out of that cage, right? And many had believed, you know, at least large-scale armed resistance, particularly from Gaza, to be to be largely defunct, at least over the past few years. No one had seen any major military operations by Hamas, so people were starting to lose hope on that front. So after October 7th, I think there was this climate of, oh, wow, okay, you know, maybe we are not relegated, you know, we don't have to be relegated to this reality for for eternity, and there's a way to sort of break out of you know, break free of our chains and break out of our prisons. Of course, in the weeks since then, we've seen just unparalleled bombing of Gaza and everything that we've described in the West Bank. Um, It's been very disheartening and dehumanizing. And at the same time, to see sort of all the world leaders, particularly the U.S., um, just continue on with their unbridled support of Israel's quote-unquote right to self-defense when, you know, thousands and thousands of children, for example, have been killed. And of course, Palestinians know that the U.S. has never been an honest broker of, you know, peace or of trying to achieve justice for their situation. But I mean, I, I, w- I wouldn't say that hope isn't there. But over the past few weeks, it's been really difficult to maintain that those initial levels of hope amidst all of the violence and suppression on on every front and even on the U.S. front, right? Like, um, not just the U.S. government support of Israel, but also the active, um, the active repression of pro-Palestine voices in the U.S. on student campuses. Laws or bills are being proposed to to silence Palestinians and their supporters as well, and to criminalize that. Um, so it's a very it is a disheartening and um, atmosphere. I wouldn't say. You know, certainly people are are hopeful, or let's say people are are resilient, and I think a source of hope has certainly been these. You know, in the face of the position of the world leaders, we've seen massive, massive protests across the world, um, and if you know, hopefully there's going to be a huge turnout for this protest in D.C. over the weekend as well. Um, so I think that is also giving giving people some hope. And you're going to be there. You're going to be there reporting on it, correct? Yeah, I am. We are, you know, a, a significant number of the Mondoise team are going to be be in D.C. over the weekend. You mentioned the U.S. unwavering support for uh, Israel's campaign here. Uh, that doesn't extend to the American people in that you're not seeing majorities supporting continued uh, military assistance to Israel. You're actually seeing majorities call for a ceasefire um, and majorities call for more assistance to Palestinians in Gaza. And I think it's in response to these to these uh, numbers that you're seeing liberal and conservative uh, Zionists and supporters of Zionist movement uh, really ramp up the fear of anti-Semitism at this moment. And I think there is obviously some truth to the fact that anti-Semitism 
would be on the rise at a time when the Israeli government is committing an ethnic cleansing campaign in the name of Jews. Um, I think that obviously the biggest threat to Jews around the world is the Netanyahu government, and which is a part of this whole right-wing milieu around the world that is generally anti-Semitic. Um, but there is does seem to be a very strong campaign of ideological repression that in the United States toward these student groups and voices that are speaking up for Palestine right now that we haven't really seen since 9-11. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, that and it's a really scary climate right now, I think, in the U.S. Um, so many people are saying we're moving into this a new sort of um, era of McCarthyism when it comes to just like the outright suppression and censorship of any voices, not just that are pro-Palestine, but that are just even perceived to be sympathetic towards Palestine as well. Um, it, it's not new, of course, for U.S. institutions, government, lobby groups, et cetera, to paint anyone, you know, who voices their um criticism of the Israeli government as anti-Semitic. You know, we know that's a tried and true tactic. There's anti-BDS laws um, all across the country. But right now, I think we're entering a new phase. Um, and the sort of fear-mongering and Islamophobic and anti-Arab sentiment that is being perpetuated by the U.S. government and by by politicians and by mainstream media as well um, has is creating a really dangerous climate that is fueling both Islamophobic attacks and anti-Semitism as well, like you said, um, because Israel is committing this genocide in Gaza in the name of, of Jewish people around the world. Um, they're actively putting... Jewish people in danger. And so um, I think we, and, you know, we saw this yesterday, I, the Biden administration announced their national security initiative to combat Islamophobia or, or whatever it was called. I don't, I forget what the exact name is. Um, Kamala Harris did this, you know, address and that was posted on social media. And it was, it wasn't, you know, it was mind boggling and I was totally baffled when watching it because in this alleged address, you know, to combat Islamophobia, which which, by the way, I mean, in my opinion, I think this is just, you know, a last ditch effort now by the Biden administration to kind of save themselves um, from their the polls that are showing that their, you know, Biden's favorability is dropping amongst Arab and Muslim voters. Um, but even in this, you know, attempt to sort of save face. Immediately, when they actually address anti-Muslim and Islamophobic sentiments, they immediately blamed it on the, quote, Hamas terrorist attacks and the what they call the humanitarian situation in Gaza. So, you know, they're, they're even like they were attributing the rise in Islamophobia and anti anti-Arab attacks, not to the the rhetoric that's been coming out of the government and politicians and the media, but, you know, essentially like blaming Hamas or Muslims and, you know, by default, their, their support of Palestine for, for the violence that's being enacted against them. So it's a really treacherous time. A lot of people have compared it, like you said, to post 9-11 in terms of the, the anti-Muslim fervor that we're witnessing at the moment. Um, 
I guess I, w- I, I would rephrase what I said in, in that it's not so much that they're attacking the left and pro-Palestine movements in response to polling showing that they're losing. It's more that they're yeah. seizing on what's happening right now to do what they've always done, which is try right. to delegitimize BDS and any sort of movement for Palestinian freedom. Yeah, definitely. So, Yumna, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, I, we hope that you uh, file some interesting copy from the protests. We're looking forward to reading it and that you enjoy your time here in D.C. Uh, to the extent that there is time to enjoy here. Where can people uh, go to find more about you, find out more about you and your work? Sure. Thanks. Yeah. Um, you can follow us on social media, um, at Mondeweiss on Instagram and Twitter, um, or X, sorry. We're also on a number of different platforms as well. Um, as for, for myself, I'm on Instagram, um, at Yumna underscore Patel underscore. And then on, on X at Yumna underscore Patel. So I, I post a lot of, um, some of my hot takes on on there. Um, and then, you know, we, we do a lot of video content as well, um, which you can also find hopefully from the protests this weekend. You'll be able to see those on our, our social media accounts as well. Yumna Patel is the Palestine news director for Mondawais, normally based out of Bethlehem this week in the United States. Thank you so much, Yumna. Thank you. Thanks, Yumna. As promised, today we're diving into a major event from 2006 that helps explain a lot about the current situation in Israel-Palestine. In Hebrew, it's known as the Second Lebanon War. In Arabic, it's known as the July War. The fighting lasted for 33 days. The Israeli military faced off against the armed wing of Hezbollah, the Lebanese Shia organization. And when the war ended... Israel emerged weaker and more willing to massacre civilian populations than ever. The war helps explain why on Friday, November 3rd, the day of this recording, analysts from around the world were glued to their laptop screens as Hezbollah Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah publicly spoke for the first time since the events of October 7th We'll discuss the content of his speech shortly after we explain how Nasrallah completely and thoroughly humiliated the Israeli military 17 years ago. If you only heard U.S. politicians talk about Hezbollah, you think the group would have been founded in Iran after the country's Islamic revolution. Iran's dangerous nuclear weapons program and its continued support of terrorist organizations like Hezbollah and Hamas. Iran has a series of proxy networks that are violent. It could be Hezbollah against Israel. They are a surrogate that basically works at the behest of of the Iranian government. And there have been conflicts, in fact, wars between Israel and and Hezbollah in which there have been massive military attacks coming from Lebanon, rocket strikes into Israel and Israel's response, the last one in about 2005-2006 time period. Rubio couldn't even get the correct year of the war there, typical. 
But the country most responsible for creating Hezbollah is, unsurprisingly, Israel itself, of course. Hezbollah traces its roots to Israel's first invasion of Lebanon in 1982, amid the Lebanese civil war, when Shia Muslims organized underground resistance cells. By 1985, the group issued its first manifesto, stating that its aims were explicitly anti-colonial, vowing to fight the Israeli occupation of Lebanon and Palestine, Israel's imperialist allies in the U.S. and France, and the proxies of all three in Lebanon, like the Christian militias armed by Israel, who slaughtered thousands of Palestinian refugees in the Sabra and Shatila massacres the first year of the first Israeli invasion. This isn't to say that arms and material support from Iran and Syria haven't played a role in Hezbollah's rise, just that it's laughable to call Hezbollah some kind of Iranian puppet, as if the organization hasn't built a broad base of support in Lebanon by confronting Zionist colonialism and its murderous consequences. The puppet accusations are even more laughable when understanding who leads Hezbollah. Secretary General Nasrallah is the son of a Beirut grocer who was 15 when his family was forced to flee the capital at the start of the civil war in 1975. Nasrallah took up clerical studies, impressed with his sermons, and by 1982 was seen as a natural leader for Lebanese Shia resistance. He would earn a reputation throughout the Civil War as a capable tactician. Nasrallah has since developed the reputation of a savvy pragmatist who has overseen the expansion of a social services program, which isn't just limited to Shia Muslims. Hezbollah now has a secular nationalist appeal. As a bonus, Nasrallah can light up any room with a joke, like he did once after denouncing John Bolton the second Bush administration's hardline ambassador to the United Nations, before clowning on Bolton's mustache. By the way, he looks somewhat odd, especially his mustache, Nasrallah says. I said to myself, this face, I've seen it before, but where? I couldn't remember, but afterward I remembered. Where did it turn out I had seen him? in a cartoon. <laughs> Bolton asked the barber to make him look like Yosemite Sam, is what the Secretary General implied there. How do you recover from that? Well, you don't. By the summer of 2006, Nasrallah had been driving Israelis mad for years. Under Nasrallah's command, Hezbollah forced Israel to end its occupation of Lebanese territory at the turn of the century. Guerrilla operations in the 1990s had sapped the Israeli population of its will to maintain a presence in South Lebanon. Israelis were left dumbfounded by Hezbollah attacks like one in February 1999 that killed the Israeli military's top commander in Lebanon, 38-year-old Brigadier General Erez Gerstein. An IED exploded near Gerstein's car, killing three of his IDF comrades instantly. Attempts to save the Brigadier General were in vain. He burned to death in the car after it fell off a cliff. 
A few months later, Ehud Barak's Labor Party won elections to the Knesset, Israeli parliament, on promises to leave Lebanon, either with an agreement or unilaterally, to be executed within one year of his becoming prime minister. The withdrawal would be unilateral, and it would be humiliating. Hezbollah complicated Barak's plans by offering leniency to Israel's Lebanese allies in the so-called South Lebanon Army, or SLA. Subsequent defections caused panic among the Israelis. By March 2000, multilateral negotiations over the withdrawal broke down, and Prime Minister Barak announced that Israeli troops would be out by July. Here's what happened next from a study on the 2006 war published by the U.S. military at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, authored by Matt M. Matthews and heavily cited throughout this segment. Quote. Can I actually uh, read this part? Oh, yeah, by all means. Go for it. Matthews wrote, quote, On May 21st, SLA soldiers abandoned their positions in the town of Taibe. Panicky Israeli officers in the area told the SLA, quote, Hezbollah was coming. The dire warning threw the security zone into near chaos. By the end of the day, an SLA Shiite brigade in the central sector of the security zone collapsed, with scores of soldiers surrendering to Hezbollah. As word of the SLA disintegration spread, southern Lebanese civilians who, years before, had been removed from their villages in the security zone, began moving in large numbers toward their former homes. In many cases, the civilians were moving well ahead of Hezbollah fighters. On May 22nd, the IDF ordered all SLA intelligence officials to withdraw from the security zone and move to the Israeli border. As other SLA units pulled back, they destroyed their bunkers and outposts. By the end of the day, it was readily apparent that the IDF was accelerating its withdrawal. Television audiences around the world watched in stunned disbelief at the chaotic nature of the withdrawal, the Hezbollah television station El Menar captured the humiliating retreat and called on, quote, Palestinians to follow in its path, while the Arab media painted Israel as a, quote, paper tiger. By May 23rd, the SLA had completely disintegrated. Its Western Brigade was ordered to pull back to the Israeli border, while the Druze Brigade in the east simply melted away. In many cases, the IDF and the SLA abandoned their military equipment. As each outpost fell, Hezbollah planted its yellow flags atop the fortifications. Israeli citizens along the border watched as the flags waved triumphantly only a short distance from their settlements. More victory would come Hezbollah's way in the years that followed, most notably a prisoner exchange in 2004. The organization secured the release of 430 prisoners held by Israel, 30 Lebanese and 400 Palestinians, and the remains of another 59 Lebanese militants and civilians, all for one Israeli civilian, and the bodies of three Israeli soldiers who had disappeared in October 2000. At a rally welcoming back some of these detainees to Lebanon on January 30, 2004, Nasrallah previewed the event that would start the 2006 war, vowing to free others in Israeli prisons. He referenced a Lebanese citizen who'd been held by Israel for 29 years at the time, Samir Kantar. 
From a secular Druze family, Kantar was moved to take up arms with the Palestine Liberation Organization as a teen when he saw the plight of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon. He was convicted of the murder of an Israeli policeman and two civilians, a father and his four-year-old daughter, in another attempted kidnapping in April 1979, also aimed at freeing imprisoned comrades. Israeli law enforcement claimed to have forensic evidence of Qantar being a grisly killer, though we have all seen the lengths to which Israel will go to accuse Palestinian resistance fighters of being subhuman. Qantar himself long maintained from Israeli prison that he never killed the father or his daughter, though he never denied his role in the policeman's killing, and he was only 16 years old at the time of the operation. أنا أقول له صحيح والدليل أنكم كذلك هو أنكم احتفظتم بسمير القنطار The enemy should have set free Samir Kantar now, Nasrallah said at the 2004 rally. Because they didn't do that, I assure you, they will regret it in the future. The future would come soon. The Israelis stopped one attempted abduction in 2005, but not another on July 12, 2006, when a group of Hezbollah guerrillas ambushed two Israeli armored vehicles on patrol at milepost 105 on the Israeli side of the border with Lebanon on the final morning of the Israeli Reserve Division's deployment. At exactly 9 a.m. local time, an IED hit the Israeli vehicles, followed by volleys of anti-tank missiles. Three Israeli soldiers were killed and four were wounded. Two of the wounded soldiers were seized by Hezbollah and taken over the border into Lebanon as Hezbollah missiles, mortars, rockets, and sniper rounds rained on northern Israel to give the team cover. The Israeli battalion's commander only seemed to grasp what was happening by 9.27, per Matthews, when he realized two of his men had been kidnapped. Quote, he promptly broadcast the code word Hannibal to all IDF forces in the Northern Command. Hannibal was a reference to an Israeli military doctrine formed during its first invasion of Lebanon, the so-called Hannibal Doctrine, as you might have guessed, which states that the Israeli military must use any means necessary to prevent a soldier from being abducted and used in prisoner exchanges, even if it means killing the abducted soldiers themselves. In this case, the Israelis didn't kill one of their own. They likely would later during 2014 operations in Gaza. But all means necessary this time meant operations that made war inevitable. Matthews continued with what happened next, quote, At 1100, a few armored vehicles crossed the border into Lebanon. As they moved rapidly toward a hill overlooking a possible Hezbollah escape route, a massive IED exploded beneath a Merkava 4 tank, sending heavy chunks of steel up to 150 yards away, instantly killing the crew of four. As rescue teams rushed forward to retrieve the bodies of the dead tank crew, two other IDF soldiers died during a vicious firefight with Hezbollah. At 1200, the IDF High Command issued an order called the Fourth Dimension 
activating airstrikes on 69 bridges in southern Lebanon. War was on. Israel's Prime Minister Ehud Olmert and Israeli General Staff Lieutenant Colonel Dan Halutz made what they thought were decisive measures. That night, Israeli jets and artillery continued their attacks on Lebanese infrastructure. The Israelis were convinced of an imminent victory brought by their air superiority. Matthews described, Just after midnight, an Israeli Air Force squadron flying in the vicinity of Beirut attacked and destroyed 54 Hezbollah Zelzal rocket launchers. When Halutz received word of the mission's success, he informed Olmert by secure phone that, quote, all the long-range rockets have been destroyed. We've won the war. It was shockingly overconfident. Hezbollah had developed its guerrilla warfare doctrine so that it could fight conventional battles and, quote, in many ways mirrored the approach adopted by the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong during their long war with the United States. Matthews, again, quote, In fact, one source suggests that Hezbollah leaders studied the historical model of the Viet Cong as inspiration for establishing an advanced tunnel network extending through the main avenues of approach into southern Lebanon. One Israeli commander reported finding a bunker that was more than 25 feet deep and contained a network of tunnels linking several large storage rooms in multiple entrances and exits. He said it was equipped with a camera at the entrance, linked to a monitor below to help Hezbollah fighters ambush Israeli soldiers. What this meant is that Hezbollah had built up defensive structures that stopped Israel from disarming them via airstrike. The militia also sought to diligently cover its tracks when preparing the Katusha rocket strikes that would rain on Israel throughout the conflict. Launches were set up in stages. First, lookouts checked the skies for Israeli warplanes, then a unit would set the launching mechanism, leaving immediately after. Another unit would take the rocket to the launcher, then they would disappear. The final unit would prepare the rocket for fire, either with a timing mechanism or through a remote launching device. Matthew said this would take 28 seconds, with many of the rocket squads riding bicycles to the launch location. According to one U.S. official, the Israeli Air Force only destroyed 7% of Hezbollah's resources throughout the war. A total of 3,790 rockets were fired into Israel. 901 of them hit towns and cities. 42 Israeli civilians were killed. Another 4,262 were wounded, on top of 2,773 civilians treated for, quote, shock and anxiety. It should be noted that these attacks were done in response to Israel's brutal aerial assault on civilians in Lebanon at the onset of the war, and the Hezbollah rockets did a sliver of the damage done by the Israelis. Despite having his forces well prepared, Hassan Nasrallah came to regret the kidnapping operation. He was no stranger to the pain of war, fleeing Beirut as a teen, losing his son Hadi, a Hezbollah fighter, in a clash with Israeli troops in 1997. In an interview given immediately after the July War, the Secretary General said of the kidnapping operation, quote, Hezbollah made a terrible mistake. One could forgive him for thinking that, despite eventually winning, the show of force put on by the Israelis was immense. By July 14, the Israeli Air Force had attacked the Beirut airport, and the Israeli Navy blockaded the whole of Lebanon, 
They carried out airstrikes on roads, bridges, highways, fuel storage centers, gas stations, and power stations. Nasrallah's home in South Beirut was targeted, and Israeli forces relentlessly attacked the whole surrounding area. But Nasrallah emerged unscathed and appeared shortly later on Almanar TV, which had also been attacked, to deliver a message of defiance that has since become legendary. You wanted an open war, and we are heading for an open war. We are ready for it, he said. The camera showed the Mediterranean just off the coast of Beirut, where an Israeli naval ship, INS Hanit, was stationed. Now, in the middle of the sea, opposite to Beirut, Nasrallah said, the Israeli military warship, which assaulted our infrastructure, and the houses of people and civilians. Look at it burning, he said. A guided missile slammed into INS Hanit, captured on camera. Four Israeli soldiers were killed. The ship limped back to port on its own power. Israelis became increasingly concerned that they had underestimated their adversary. You know, Hezbollah is very smart. They're all very smart. Five days after the kidnapping at milepost 105 on July 17, Ehud Olmert outlined his war aims in a speech to the Knesset. The Israeli prime minister demanded the release of the two soldiers seized on the 12th, withdrawal of Hezbollah forces from the Lebanese-Israeli border, and the group's full disarmament. This would inevitably require an incursion of ground forces into southern Lebanon. The first Israeli commandos crossed the border on the 17th. Entire army units would follow. Here's a selected timeline illustrating how things went. July 19th, Hezbollah anti-tank fire kills five soldiers from an Israeli engineer battalion trying to take shelter in the town of Maroon al-Ras. July 21st, Israeli reservists are called up. The same day, per Matthews, quote, Israel was forced to request an emergency resupply of precision-guided missiles from the United States. In 10 days, the Israeli Air Force had used up most of its high-tech munitions, and yet this huge expenditure of weaponry did little to change Hezbollah's military logic or its fighting capability. July 25th, Israeli Brigadier General Gal Hirsch tells the press that Israeli forces controlled the town of Bint Jebel, where Hassan Nasrallah gave a speech in 2000 celebrating Israel's withdrawal from South Lebanon. July 26th, Israeli forces that enter Bint Jebel at 5.30 a.m. are attacked in a maneuver that one Israeli soldier described as, quote, an ambush from hell. Hezbollah pummeled the Israeli forces with mortars, rockets, missiles, and small arms fire. Wounded and dead Israeli soldiers weren't evacuated until nightfall. July 28th, Israeli intelligence service Mossad prepares to leak to the press a memo stating, quote, Hezbollah had not suffered a significant degradation in its military capabilities and that the organization might be able to carry on the conflict for several months. August 5th, 10,000 Israeli soldiers in Lebanon have moved no further than four miles against a fighting force of 3,000 Hezbollah guerrillas who didn't need to call up their reservists. By comparison, in 1982, the Israelis made it to Beirut in one day, about 60 miles from the coastal border. 
The Israelis had been trying to drive Hezbollah north of the Litani River, about 18 miles from the Lebanon-Israeli border. Four miles is the equivalent of 80 Manhattan blocks. Less than a week later, there would be a ceasefire. Israelis were left scratching their heads. What had happened to their famed military superiority? What happened was, their previous victories were based on territorial expansion. Now they were primarily an occupation force, bogged down by their brutal management of Palestinians and the Palestinian response. The July war, it must be noted, came after years of counterinsurgency operations to put down the Second Intifada. Top Israeli military strategist Shimon Naveh put it this way, quote, The IDF fell in love with what it was doing with the Palestinians. It became addictive. When you fight a war against a rival who's by all means inferior to you, you may lose a guy here or there, but you're in total control. It's nice. You can pretend that you fight the war, and yet it's not really a dangerous war. One anonymous reservist had a similar take, albeit more scathing in its criticism of Israeli leadership. For the last six years, we were engaged in stupid policing missions in the West Bank, he told the Times of London. Checkpoints, hunting stone-throwing Palestinian children, that kind of stuff. The result was that we were not ready to confront real fighters like Hezbollah. The 11th of August marked the beginning of the end. The UN Security Council adopted a resolution calling for a ceasefire based on the withdrawal of Israeli troops from southern Lebanon. Under the deal, the Lebanese military and UN peacekeeping forces would control Lebanese territory south of the Litani. Still, Olmert's government ordered one last push northward in a desperate face-saving maneuver. One airborne division saw nine of its members killed and 31 wounded, as they took cover in a house pulverized by Hezbollah anti-tank missiles. The Merkava tank division was ambushed in Wadi al-Saluki, a valley in southern Lebanon. 11 of 24 tanks in the division were hit. Eight crewmen and four infantrymen were killed. Then on August 13th, the Israeli military carried out an incredibly stupid paratrooper assault aimed at exerting some sort of control over Lebanese territory south of the Litani, this decision could easily have had calamitous results if not for the implementation of the ceasefire, Matthews wrote. According to one source, most of the IDF soldiers were immediately surrounded once they hit the ground. The ceasefire went into effect the next day, not before Hezbollah reminded Israel one last time that it failed to guarantee the safety of its citizens. 250 rockets hit Israeli territory in the final hours of the war. Hezbollah's victory was unambiguous. By August 14, many military analysts were convinced the IDF had suffered a significant defeat, Matthews wrote. According to the Israeli media, Ynet News to be exact, Israeli intelligence leaders told Prime Minister Omer, quote, the war was a national catastrophe and Israel suffered a critical blow. Hezbollah would echo the assessment in a victory rally in Beirut on September 22nd. Even if the whole world came, they wouldn't be able to save those two detainees 
except through indirect negotiations and the exchange of prisoners, Nasrallah said. The Hezbollah secretary general told the crowd he was particularly pleased with the anti-tank operations at the closing stages of the war. He would later say in 2015, quote, the myth of the Merkava tank and the glory of the invincible Israeli army was shattered. Speaking of myths, the Israeli military appeared to lie about how many Hezbollah fighters it killed. The IDF reported 450 Hezbollah fighters killed, Matthews wrote. This figure was highly exaggerated, as it appears likely that only 184 Hezbollah fighters were killed in ground fighting in southern Lebanon during the entire war, end of quote. Meanwhile, 117 Israeli soldiers were killed. And to put a punctuation mark on the outcome, Hezbollah did eventually secure the release of Samir Kantar in 2008 in exchange for the remains of the two Israeli soldiers kidnapped in the abduction that led to the start of the war. Kantar's story would end in 2015 when he was killed in an airstrike most likely carried out by Israel in Damascus, where Qantar was fighting the Syrian civil war on the government side, which Hezbollah has backed throughout. But victory in 2006 came at a significant cost for the Lebanese. Israel showed that it would not think twice about targeting anything and everything and massacring civilians from the safety of their superior air force. Here's a summary from Al-Arabiya, Quote, some 1,200 Lebanese died, the vast majority of them civilians and an estimated one-third of them children. The war also caused the displacement of a third of the country's four and a half million people. Almost every bridge in the country and thousands of buildings, vital infrastructure, transport hubs, and industrial buildings were damaged or destroyed. The Lebanese government estimated the bill for reconstruction was 2.8 billion dollars. Not only that, but the Israeli military emerged from the war more convinced than ever that they can and should target civilians. They named a new strategy or doctrine after the South Beirut neighborhood of Dahia, which had been pummeled by Israeli forces throughout the war. In 2008, this was all outlined by Israeli General Gadi Eisenkot, head of Northern Command, in 2006, Chief of General Staff from 2015 to 2019. Eisenkot said, quote, What happened in the Dahia quarter of Beirut in 2006 will happen in every village from which Israel is fired on. We will apply disproportionate force on it and cause great damage and destruction there. From our standpoint, these are not civilian villages. They are military bases. This is not a recommendation. This is a plan. And it has been approved. By now, a lot of this is probably sounding very familiar from recent headlines. Yeah, pretty familiar. For one, there are still questions about the fate of many Israeli civilians taken hostage by Hamas on October 7. Why were so many killed and burned beyond recognition? The value of hostages to resistance groups is well documented, as is Israel's willingness to kill its own hostages rather than let them be used in prisoner exchanges in the so-called Hannibal Directive. 
As alluded to earlier, Israeli Lieutenant Hamar Golden was likely killed during Hannibal operations in Gaza in 2014 after being abducted by Palestinian militants. The New York Times noted at the time, quote, a military spokeswoman declined to say whether Lieutenant Golden had been killed along with two comrades by a suicide bomb, one of the militants exploded, or later by Israel's assault on the area to hunt for him. As for the aftermath of October 7th, there are many eyewitness reports completely ignored by most of the U.S. media of Israeli forces firing on both Hamas militants and Israeli hostages in so-called rescue operations, most notably at Kibbutz Beri. Israel's indifference for the well-being of its own civilian hostages is also painfully evident when Israeli officials petulantly reject suggestions that they stop their indiscriminate bombing campaign to negotiate a prisoner exchange. The families of hostages have also reported being completely neglected and lied to by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Another element of the July war that likely reminds you of the present conflict, the Israelis can't fight for shit. It's why they haven't launched a full-scale invasion of Gaza, as many were warning as the events of October 7th unfolded, because they cannot. They are trying. They are failing. The response so far has been all Dahia doctrine, which is to say the indiscriminate slaughter of civilians. Nasrallah made reference to all of this in his speech today, Friday, November 3rd, quote, in 2006, their aim was to eradicate the resistance in Lebanon and secure the release of the two prisoners without resorting to negotiation or exchange. However, over the course of 33 days, they failed to achieve these goals. Presently, the situation in Gaza mirrors this scenario, albeit with an escalation in terms of crimes and massacres, end of quote. But however the Israeli military proceeds, if they decide to continue their aerial mass murder campaign or if they go ahead with an invasion, they'll need to keep an eye on their northern border and the hardened, sophisticated guerrilla forces that thoroughly embarrassed them for years about two decades ago. Of course, there has already been fighting between Hezbollah and Israel since October 7th. Nasrallah boasted today of bogging down one-third of Israeli military forces in the north, albeit at some cost, he acknowledged that 57 Hezbollah fighters have been killed in the recent fighting. But Hezbollah could escalate its involvement, the Secretary General warned, based on two fundamental factors, quote, the unfolding events in Gaza and the conduct of the Zionist enemy towards Lebanon. As for Israel's patron, the United States government, Nasrallah, had this message, I want to make it clear that the fleets you threaten us with, we have also made preparations to counter them, he said. Those who thwarted your plans in the early 1980s are still very much alive today, and alongside them are their children and grandchildren.
Order! Order in the court! Order! We have before a name that's been recommended by the Tribunal Investigating Counter-Revolutionary Activity. Adhering to procedures laid out in our charter, we will proceed with a trial to determine whether the defendant is guilty or innocent. Rah, rabble, 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 Enough, rabble. enough order <laughs> on the docket today. One Cornell Ronald West. Rah, 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 boo, boo, yay, boo. Enough, yay. enough. I'll read the evidence. Wow, very divisive. <laughs> Here's the evidence against Mr. West. He's running a quixotic campaign for president that has zero chances of winning, but still requires him to siphon time and resources on the left from campaigns that are more important, like labor organizing. He's affiliated himself with some of the biggest frauds on the left during this campaign, first launching it with the People's Party, then switching to the Green Party, now running as an independent. He's also good friends with Harlan Crow. He took a $3,300 campaign donation from Crow, which he was eventually pressured into giving back. But before he gave it back, he wrote an all-time bad tweet. I'd like to submit into evidence uh, this exhibit, a tweet from Mr. West on October 20th, 2023. Quote, how sad that perception so quickly triumph over truth in our decadent culture. This holds in our major catastrophe in the Middle East, where the rich humanity of Palestinians is rendered invisible. It also holds at home in the minor scandal about Harlan Crow's donation to my campaign. Uh, nice equivalency there, bro. I'm standing up for Palestinians by associating myself with a guy who's funding their, their genocide. West goes on to say of Crow, quote, He is a staunch anti-Trump Republican who has never forget collections of tyrants. Stalin, Mao, Hitler, and many others, hmm. and patriotic collections of Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln. Does this disqualify him from contributing to my campaign? Most people holler yes. I say no. As a jazz man, I listened and decided to give the money back to Brother Harlan. <laughs> Brother Harlan. But I still state the truth. Hashtag truth, justice, love, hashtag onward. I like the framing here, like Harlan Crow is in the news because he has Nazi memorabilia. Not that Harlan Crow is in the news because he's been caught like buying the Supreme Court. <laughs> yes, helping advance a far right agenda through the judiciary that runs counter to everything that Cornell West says he fights for. Uh, I'd also like to submit into evidence this tweet that has resurfaced from January 2011. Quote, this from Cornell West, quote, Ronald Reagan was a freedom fighter in terms of supporting our Jewish bros and cis in the Soviet Union and opposing vicious forms of communism. Mm. Not sure where Mr. West was going with that. Not sure I want to know. But if you're giving Reagan any credit other than for locking down the throat goat, 
You're wrong already. <laughs> Woo! Uh, yeah, okay. I, I I don't know if Doctor West will be able to recover from that 2011 tweet. I, that that is some that could push the jury over the edge. Yeah, the evidence here, as you can see, is pretty damning. You are only as good as your worst tweet. Okay, we have on the other side here a filing from the defense. It notes West's longtime commitment to anti-capitalism, his unwavering support for revolutionary struggles around the world, his high rate of being good and correct on many issues. And there's a note that urges the court to not let what might be a short-term misstep in strategy here overshadow a life of work as a public intellectual on the left. Also enclosed is a piece of evidence. It's a video of Cornell West telling Alan Dershowitz to put down the crack pipe while debating Israel and Palestine. Anybody who commits war crimes are barbaric. I'm saying that explicitly, but I want you to say if the Israeli Defense Forces are killing children, no, no. are they barbaric too? No, no, are they, no, are they ever no, barbaric? No, no, no. If they target, no. if they target children, yes. Uh, have they ever targeted no, children? No, absolutely never. Never, never in, in, never in, in, in the in history years. have they ever targeted oh, brother, a child. You got to get off the crack pipe, and, and, man. And please, no, no. They please. Okay, that's pretty compelling evidence right there. That's pretty compelling evidence. Yeah, I assume that was pre-Epstein revelations too so it was before Dershowitz was uh, no you know this was from a few weeks ago oh well okay so he was he was kicking Dersh while he was down okay I mean everywhere you know Dershowitz you know he's just such an easy target these days (sighs) but I will say that in light of everything going on in Palestine and with the Democratic Party's full-throated support, I'm going to have a real hard time convicting Cornel West this week. I think you've made a case even stronger than the defense made here. And as the judge, the uh, jury, the bailiff, the uh, court reporter, and the catering service, I will find... Cornell West, innocent. Cornell West is innocent. Innocent. All right, now let's let's enjoy those past hors d'oeuvres from the catering service that this courtroom has for some reason. All right, moving along with the show, let's turn now to the maddening saga that is... The hunt for UFOs on Capitol Hill. It's been about it's been about five months since former Navy intelligence officer David Grush went public with some pretty wild claims about how the government has off-budget defense programs devoted to reverse engineering extraterrestrial technology recovered from crashed ships. Uh, he was quoted in a report by the debrief. Grush does have the credentials to make these claims. He's verified to have worked within several U.S. government intelligence agencies and even 
the task force assembled to study UFOs, or UAPs as they're now known. He was a liaison to this task force until 2021. But while he does have credentials, he does lack some credibility as well. For example, he also alleged that the Pope and Mussolini were once involved with the U.S. intelligence services in a UFO recovery mission back in the 1940s. And according to reporting from Ken Klippenstein at The Intercept, Grush did have a brief stint in 2018 in a mental health facility, though the former raises far more suspicions than the latter, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, for sure. We've all had some some rough weeks. Definitely. And uh, mental health facility, I'm totally chill with that. U.S. teaming up with Mussolini and the Pope, uh, the citations needed? Yeah, that's where I'm at on this, too. But the House Oversight Committee decided they wanted to hear more from this guy. <laughs> and in July, it turned into one of the wildest public hearings on the Hill in a long time. Do you believe that our government is in possession of UAPs? Uh, absolutely, based on interviewing uh, over 40 witnesses over four years. And, and, and where? I know the exact locations, and, and those locations were provided to the Inspector General. At one point, you had said that there, 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 there uh, has been harmful activity or aggressive activity. Has any of the activity um, been aggressive, been um, hostile? In your reports? Uh, I know of multiple colleagues of mine that got physically injured. And uh, the activity... And I gotta, I by, to... by UAPs or by, by people within the, the federal government? Both. If you believe we have crashed craft, uh, stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? As I've stated publicly already in my News Nation interview, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries. Yeah. Were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to that are currently still on the program. Okay, so that's a lot to take in there. And watching this hearing go down, I, I was thinking to myself, maybe this guy's telling the truth, or at least he believes he's telling the truth, because at this point he's putting himself at risk of a perjury charge. If he's just lying for publicity, he's making claims that can be proven pretty easily to be lies, and suddenly he has legal exposure. A frustrating thing about the hearing, though, is whenever lawmakers tried to drill down on something, Grush would say he couldn't elaborate further in a non-classified setting. And unlike with a lot of hearings on national security matters, this one wasn't followed by a closed session in a skiff to receive that classified information from Grush. So at the end of this hearing, everyone was kind of left hanging. But still, Grush made these claims, and he told the committee that he provided the names of programs and the names of people and the names of companies, the names of defense contractors involved in these programs, he provided all these names to the Intelligence Community Inspector General. So if there is something there, and if lawmakers want to get to the bottom of it, even if it is just to figure out if Grush is credible or not, this is a good place to start. A month after the hearing in August, committee members 
Burchett, Moskovitz, and Luna. I know what is it? Tim Burchett. Is it Adam Moskovitz? Oh, and Anna no. Paulina Luna. It's uh oh, I just looked up this clown's name. It's uh wait a sec. It's okay. I know what it is, and I'm definitely not googling it right now. I'm just recalling it. It's Jared Moskowitz. Jared Moskowitz. So we've got Tim Burchett, Jared Moskowitz, and Anna Paulina Luna all on the committee. They wrote a letter to the intelligence community inspector general, Thomas Monheim, asking for the names that Grush testified he provided to the inspector general. The letter that the uh, committee lawmakers wrote to Mr. Monheim says, quote, specifically, Mr. Grush could not provide the names or titles of individuals with firsthand knowledge of or direct access to UAP crash retrieval programs. Similarly, Mr. Grush could not provide the names of titles of individuals with firsthand knowledge of or direct access to UAP reverse engineering programs. However, Mr. Grush testified that he provided this information to the intelligence community inspector general's office. The committee didn't get the names, but what it did get was something else it had been requesting, a classified briefing on the matter set to take place before Christmas. Well, it took place, but instead of settling this matter once and for all, it raised even more fucking questions for the lawmakers. Here were reps Luna and Moskovitz talking to reporters afterward. Anything other than what we were told in... in yeah, we were actually told that we don't have clearance to learn some certain things. Really? Yeah. Really? Again. Is that in itself telling? It, yeah. could, it could be. I don't want to read into it, but obviously, I, I think a lot of members were very frustrated. You guys both looked frustrated. You guys both seemed frustrated. The fact is, is that Congress should have oversight and the ability to look into and have access to these programs. And the fact is, is that we're being told that we don't have access to these programs, which defeats the purpose of what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. But your colleagues do have access if they're on armed services or anything? No, no. Oh, really? No members? Well, they didn't tell us. They didn't tell us who. Okay. They wouldn't answer that. Okay, what the fuck? So the lawmakers on the oversight committee charged with oversight of the Defense Department were provided a classified briefing only to be told at that briefing that they don't have the clearance to receive answers to their questions. Mm. And reiterating what reps Luna and Moskovitz said, rep Scott Perry added, quote, we can't even find out who is allowed to know. Now, the Defense Department only provided the name of one person who testified at this classified hearing. And that was provided after an inquiry was made by John Greenwald Jr. at the Black Vault. No relation, as far as I know. Uh, uh, that official was Robert Storch, the Department of Defense Inspector General, who is, by the way, not Grush and not the intelligence community Inspector General, who Grush claimed he gave the names to. Committee Chair Burchett said he believed the witnesses were telling the truth here, but the lack of candor reflected an entire system of compartmentalized classification. He said, quote, the federal government learned to do this during the Second World War. You have to imagine Oak Ridge National Laboratory, the Manhattan Project, thousands of people working on the atomic bomb and less than 12 knew what it was. These guys can swear under oath. They can take a lie detector because they're telling the truth as they know it. 
The Defense Department Inspector General, while not the right person to verify claims made by Grush, does have in his purview the main agency now tasked with studying UFOs, which is the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or ARO. But that agency is barely a year old, set up in 2022 within the Pentagon. It really doesn't know shit. Before 2022, it was an entity called the UAP Task Force. That's when Grush was working there. It doesn't exist anymore. And before that, it was something called ATIP, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. And before that, it was probably some secret shit we don't know about. And at one point, it was called Project Blue Book. It's all a bit unnerving that the public-facing body charged with investigating UFOs changes its name more than an internet steroids distributor. At one point, it was just a tip. (laughs) Boo! Uh, The director of Arrow, Dr. Sean Kilpatrick, did give a briefing to reporters on October 31st, just a few days ago, and he took questions about David Grush. And he said that he has no evidence to confirm the existence of a reverse engineering program, but that his office was interviewing people associated with Grush's claims. And here's what he said, what Kilpatrick said about those interviewees, according to the transcript, quote, what they are reporting, we are documenting. They are reviewing and then revalidating that this is what they want to say. We then research all of that collectively. There is a... If you think of it as a story arc, there's a number of people that kind of fit into the story arc. But then there's these little offshoots and variations on themes. We're investigating each and every one of them. We're cross-referencing those. There are some bits of information that are turning out to be things and events that really happened. A lot of it is still under review, and we're putting all that together into our historical report. So I guess there might be some sort of report coming out. On all this, Kilpatrick did say his office invited Grush to come in and speak to them on at least four or five occasions. Grush responded, telling reporters that he's never received an invitation, not an email, not a phone call from Arrow. So I guess we can't even get a definitive answer on this issue. I don't know, man, whether it's aliens or not, and it's probably not. Oversight lawmakers trying to investigate the claims of whistleblowers and running into an absurd wall of secrecy makes you think there's something going on. And again, it doesn't even have to be aliens. But it might be. But it might be. (laughs) Something to look forward to, Arrow will soon be rolling out a portal for the public to report UFO sightings to be investigated. Uh... Prayers up to whoever's on the receiving end of those. They're just going to be fucking inundated. Uh, but it's necessary. Look, it's necessary. Yeah, and hopefully they'll have a uh, a solid civil service job and salary and uh, won't be a... Hell, I would do the con- job. I think it would actually be kind of fun to do that job. Oh, great. Sentinel boys selling out to the Pentagon. That's right. You would have to work for the <laughs> Pentagon. I think we'll get the clearance. I'm afraid that if we don't haul out the garbage can right now, the chemical reaction currently taking place inside of it could cause a horrific explosion. 
So let's get this over with. Interns, bring out the garbage can. Not sure oh, if shaking wow. up the garbage can helps with that chemical reaction. Uh, I do fear for the safety of our interns, but they are wearing protective equipment. Oh, oh my God. Oh, it smells. Oh, there, there's just all this like wet, rotting paper in there from all the plane tickets to, to birthright that no one is taking anymore. Because everyone under the age of fucking 50 hates Israel. <laughs> Thank you, interns, right there. It's the Garbage Can Genocide Edition. Garbage candidate number one, John Kirby. He's the guy in the White House in charge of selling the public on why we need to support an ethnic cleansing campaign in Gaza. Hate this piece of shit. His official title is Coordinator for Strategic Communications at the National Security Council. He has both questioned the civilian death toll coming out of Gaza and he has justified the high civilian death count coming out of Gaza by saying, hey, that's just war. The apathy toward Palestinian civilians has always existed here in Washington, but watching the ruling class and its mouthpieces, like watching CNN anchors pivot so quickly from the plight of Ukrainian civilians to the necessity of civilian deaths in Gaza, I'm amazed at how they don't get a nosebleed from the cognitive dissonance. Here's a clip made by our friend Jordan Yule that reveals Kirby's, let's say, different approach to each conflict. First, you'll hear Kirby talking about civilian deaths in Ukraine and pretending to cry. He's so moved by it. Then you'll hear Kirby's response to civilian deaths in Gaza. Um, it's hard to look at what he's doing in Ukraine, what his forces are doing in Ukraine, and think that any um, uh, ethical, moral individual could justify that. It's difficult to look at the... Sorry. It's difficult to look at some of the images and imagine that any well-thinking serious mature leader would do that <clears throat> so i can't talk to his psychology but uh, i think we can all speak to his depravity this is war it is combat it is bloody it is ugly and it's going to be messy and innocent civilians are going to be hurt going forward i wish i could tell you something different i wish that that wasn't going to happen uh, but it is it is going to happen a few days later, Israel bombed the shit out of a refugee camp in Gaza, killing scores of people. And Kirby said he didn't have enough information to comment on it. Then he tried to hide under the podium. Something tells me we still haven't even seen bottom from this guy yet. Well, uh, good news if he likes to cry, uh, because the stench in the garbage can is certainly very thick. Yes, that will make your fucking eyes water. Garbage candidate number two, it's Congressman Brian Mast, Republican from Florida. During the unfolding humanitarian crisis in Gaza, Mast wrote legislation to slow down the already restricted flow of food, water, and medical supplies into Gaza. And he got over 150 Democrats to support the bill, too, even after admitting that his bill was aimed at delivering collective punishment on Palestinian civilians because they aren't innocent. 
I would encourage the other side to not so lightly throw around the idea of innocent Palestinian civilians, as is frequently said. Uh, I don't think we would so lightly throw around the term innocent Nazi civilians during World War II. Right? The list goes on and on of the examples we could give of what somebody might just call a rank-and-file Gazan or a rank-and-file person in the West Bank or just a Palestinian that maybe they don't say falls under that name of Hamas or, or, or Palestinian Islamic Jihad, but by any classical definition would absolutely be considered a terrorist. I would ask that it be looked at through that lens that, uh, you know, there's, there's not this far stretch to say there are very few innocent Palestinian civilians. Probably wouldn't surprise you to learn he's also the guy who wore an IDF uniform to work at the Capitol a few weeks ago. Which I think makes him a lawful combatant <laughs> and therefore do the rest of the logic puzzle to figure out where I'm going with this. Garbage candidate number three. Hillary Clinton, she's back. During a recent event at Rice University, Clinton spoke out against a ceasefire in Gaza. She claimed it would only be a gift to Hamas. People who are calling for a ceasefire now do not understand Hamas. That is not possible. It would be such a gift to Hamas because they would spend whatever time there was a ceasefire in effect rebuilding their uh, armaments, you know, creating stronger positions to be able to fend off uh, an eventual um, assault by the Israelis. So we're in a very different world. I don't think it had to be the world we're in, but that's where we are, and we've got to figure our way uh, forward through it. Uh, thank you, lady who supported the destabilization of the Middle East as a senator and then oversaw the destruction of Libya as a secretary of state. She came, she saw, he died, she moved on. And Africa is still a fucking mess from that, by the way. Garbage candidate number four. Let's keep it going. It's Amy Schumer, who has separated herself from the rest of ill-informed I stand with Israel celebrities by just outright endorsing genocide. She even at one point tried to claim that Martin Luther King Jr. would have supported what Israel is doing right now. She recently told her followers on Twitter to call their senators and urge them to pass new defense assistance to Israel, tweeting, quote, Senator Schumer is pushing a very fair bill that gives Israel the money she needs to defend herself and provide ample funds to protect innocent civilians in Gaza. Please call your senator to tell them to support it. And no, he is not my dad. Yeah, but he is your cousin, so... Yeah, you usually only say that when there's no relation as opposed to some substantial <laughs> relation. Yeah. Amy Schumer, man, her shtick, you know, her shtick was better when Lisa Lampanelli was doing it. Who the hell is Amy Schumer? <laughs> Garbage can number five, U.S. Senator John Fetterman. It's the world's largest by size milkshake duck, at least for those who haven't really been paying attention to Fetterman's shitty politics in Israel. He's been one of the most strident supporters for the IDF over the last few weeks. He does not support a ceasefire, claiming it will just allow Hamas to rearm itself. He tweeted a few weeks into the siege, quote, 
Now is not the time to talk about a ceasefire. We must support Israel in its efforts to eliminate the Hamas terrorists who slaughtered innocent men, women, and children. Hamas does not want peace. They want to destroy Israel. We can talk about a ceasefire after Hamas is neutralized. He also has been posting those propaganda kidnap posters outside his congressional office. And when he saw a photo of the words Free Palestine scrawled on a wall, he tweeted, This is reprehensible. The only thing that belongs on a wall right now is this, referring to those kidnap posters outside his office. I don't know, Senator, I can think of a few other things that belong on a wall right now. <laughs> Asked by labor reporter Mike Elk to elaborate on his defense of Israel, here's what Fetterman said. Uh, I am really about making sure that Israel is able to do what a U Israel deserves to do. This is just sad, dude. Sad. Uh, go home and menace your own neighbors, John. <laughs> You know, most people, when they get depression, they eat a lot of ice cream, they binge Netflix. I don't know how I feel about Fetterman, like, recovering from his mental health thing by supporting genocide. Not good. No, pretty bad. All right, and finally, garbage candidate number six, it's Bernie Sanders. Bro. Bro, what are you doing? Call for a fucking ceasefire already here. You're expected to lead on this issue, but somehow you've been outflanked by Dick Durbin in the Financial Times editorial board. Wow. That's, you don't need a lot to indict Bernie for this garbage can. And suddenly he is a leading contender here. Yeah. But. But I don't think uh, he's going to be able to top really anyone else on this list uh who's going in sk i mean john kirby makes a pretty pretty strong case well the only the only thing that gives me pause is your comment that we haven't seen the bottom from this guy yet that's true that is very true amy schumer might be a flash in the pan worth throwing in the can <laughs> uh the way you phrase that how could i say no Amy Schumer, you are going in the garbage can. Oh, we, we throw you we threw your second cousin Chuck in there too. Don't worry, he's not your dad. He's your second cousin. I guess we finally found out what's inside Amy Schumer. An urge to do genocide. That is the show. I thought you were gonna say garbage too. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the new format. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. We're here in D.C., so you don't have to be.